becoming hummus, going deep and coming back up. What does this make possible with something better? And I, and so I having, I mean, I encourage people and I see people that think they're, you know, everything is going down the tube. No, let's look at what pieces are there. What can be rebuilt from the ashes of what you had. Welcome to the Life in Paradise podcast, the show about creating a life you never need a vacation from. You'll gain inspiration from those who have done it before as we share experiences, strategies, and offer practical steps you can take to live your dream life in paradise. With your host, attorney turned alchemist, Dawn Fleming. Today, I am just thrilled and delighted to have a very special guest in our Life in Paradise on a Shoestring expert series. And if you don't know Dan Miller, you will want to because his work is amazing. And he is the New York Times bestselling author of the book, 48 Days to the Work You Love. And his podcast of the same name is actually in the top 1% of podcasts. So he's basically created an entire company around the book. And uh, as well as his Eagles community, which I am loving being a, a part of. And um, he's the perfect expert guest for the launch of our Life in Paradise podcast because he does live in paradise. And I had the opportunity to spend two days with Dan and his team slash family. Um, they're both. <laughs> and uh, be able to in Osprey, Florida. So thank you so much for being with me here today, Dan. I really appreciate your time. Oh, absolutely. I'm looking forward to our conversation about paradise. What an appealing topic. Right? Yeah. Who doesn't want that? Well, I, where I want to start, you've had so much success. But for those who don't know you, can you share a little bit about your background? Uh, because it seems like people always look at folks like the finished product and you know don't always understand that it wasn't always that way. <laughs> you know, I'm listening to a, a book right now. It's Bono of U2's new book, Surrender. And again, talking about the early days, the struggles they went through and how they had to pretend and hype their way to get started. Oh my goodness. But it rang a lot of bells. I was, I grew up on a farm. We were dirt poor, literally. I remember when we bought our first cow, one cow to milk by hand. And then got up to like 12 before we got any kind of milking machines. So I was raised with that where you work hard, you eke out a living by producing something that other people want, whether it's milk or corn or soybeans or hay bales. But in that environment, I had a lot of time to think. I used to kid my dad. I had too much time out in the fields to think. And it allowed me to dream about things that would be more than the life that I was seeing right in front of me. So I was determined to move away from that simple, hardworking, farming, family environment. So I, I went to college, really not as a career path, but just as a, a socially acceptable way to, to escape from the farm. And I got my degree in psychology, just as a process of personal study. But I've always been an entrepreneur. I've, I've never had a job where I got a paycheck because in those early years, growing up as I did on a farm, learned a little bit about carpentry, a little bit about electrical, mechanical, and I just saw ideas everywhere where I could just pursue the idea and start to create income that was not just tied to time, but rather on the results that it produced. 
for people. So I was able to, even through college years, paint houses. I didn't get paid X number of dollars per hour. I would bid the job and then complete it at my own speed and be paid for the entire project. So I've always viewed things like that and just kept following ideas. So I, I'm an entrepreneur from the top of my head to the tip of my toes and never having had a real job. But in my mid forties, um, I had an opportunity, a request from the church that I was going to, to teach a class on these career transitions with the background, not only my, my bachelor's, but then my master's in clinical psychology as well. I was used to working with people going through these changes, really positioned myself as a coach before the term coach was popular in that application, not being connected with sports, but helping people find direction. And that little Sunday school class that I started teaching grew and grew and grew. And it was interesting, Dawn, because I expected having a Sunday school class on career life transitions that I would get the 18-year-old wondering what to major in in college or the 23-year-old who was newly out of college and realized, wow, it wasn't as easy to get that Mercedes in the driveway and the white picket fence as they were led to believe and wondering what should I do now. And I had a few people like that, but the bulk of the class was physicians, dentists, attorneys, accountants, engineers, pastors. I'm like, what are you guys doing here? And they said, well, you know, we're doing okay. Everybody sees us as successful, but I don't think this is it. I think there's something more. And so it was that space, you know, the 47-year-old who says, I'm doing okay. I've got an advanced degree, but I don't think this is really it. And that sweet space of helping people look, take a fresh look at how has God gifted me? What are my unique talents and skills? Having at that point enough life experience to identify recurring themes where they really felt like they were in the zone. What are my talents? What are my passions? And then what can I do now to blend those all together and work on Monday morning that's meaningful, purposeful, and productive? So that's what I do. That's what I've been doing now for many years is exactly that. And I can do that as a writer, as a speaker, as a coach. So lots of different things to deliver that, but that's really what I want to do is help people figure that out. Well, and I love that, uh, that work. It's so important. Um, I've been through it myself as you have. And so having that personal experience, feeling that feeling of like, this isn't it. I don't know what it is, but, but this isn't it. It really gives us, I think, an empathy uh, to that, that people really feel like, you know, I, you've been there. And I think that that comes across for you, uh, with you, of course. Um, but it's, it's interesting. I, um, I read a book last year, if you've, you've, uh, heard of it, the happiness curve. Yeah. And I was, I was fascinated to find out that this isn't just an American thing, right? This, this happens in, in all cultures where, you know, you're spending like the first half of your life and establishing yourself professionally, you know, uh, getting to a certain status or income level or what have you. And then there's like this, this lull, right? And, and it, it's about 47, you know, 50 years old and, and you start, maybe you're on the, you know, the second half of life. And you're like, is this it? Right? Mm -hmm. Is it is there isn't there more than this? And and so I was uh 
my undergraduate degree was in anthropology. So I'm always uh, fascinated by different cultures and, and how things uh, work around the world, you know, not mm -hmm. just where I grew up. And I just thought that was really fascinating that this was like a global, you know, cross-cultural phenomena. I just thought maybe it was, you know, the American dream and, you know, not not living up to expectations or something like that. What, what, uh, what were your, your thoughts on that? Well, in that happiness curve too, they talk about, once somebody gets to about $70,000 a year, the money doesn't make much change in a person's sense of fulfillment and happiness. So what happens is people will go beyond that. So all of a sudden they're at, you know, $300,000 a year and they wonder why their happiness hasn't increased as a correlate of their income increasing, but there's not a direct connection at that point. So we have to look at other factors to define, you know, what brings us a sense of fulfillment, purpose, and meaning in life that go beyond just income generation. There's a lot of ways to make money, and that's fortunate for us. That's exciting, but we have to go beyond that to really get a sense that we're living in our own paradise. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because I uh, that was interesting as well. Yeah, higher income doesn't equal higher happiness. Yes, no, for sure. So I was uh, uh, wanted to, to bring up something that I, I saw in your book, and that was a recent college graduate uh, who had asked you a question about having a forever career. And you were talking about a forever calling rather than a forever career. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, my. Love to. Yeah. In... 48 days to the work you love, I distinguish between vocation, career, and job. Vocation is the big picture. That would include concepts like your mission, your purpose, your destiny. So that can be something like I want to, you know, help alleviate suffering in the world, something big like that. Career then is a subset of that. So if I define that as an example, I'll help alleviate suffering in the world, I could choose as a career to be a nurse, a doctor, a massage therapist, you could really even use politician, teacher, pastor, a lot of things would be fitting careers. But we see there's a lot of flexibility there. Job then is the smallest component. Job is what do you decide to do? So I can be a nurse who works at Sarasota Memorial Hospital near where I am here. But we see in that framework that then changing a job should never change your vocation or calling. Those are bigger concepts to move down through. So if somebody decides at 47 years old, I don't want to be an attorney anymore, that's okay. That doesn't mean you go down and start over where you were when you're 18. You have a wealth of academic and life experience from which to draw. So you simply transition into something else that may from the outside look very, very different, but it still is embracing your vocation, that calling, which is the bigger picture. And once you see it as such, then it takes the pressure off finding the perfect job. Jobs come and go. There are things we can't even anticipate but they come and go, that's okay. Careers come and go. It's more and more common now for somebody to have two or three full careers where it's not just, gee, you got, you made a decision at 18 and because you had the academic ability, you know, you went to college, went to graduate school, and now you feel trapped at 47 years old. No, you can change. And we see that a lot where people are changing dramatically if they understand this concept of having a vocation or calling as the bigger picture that 
guides and it is that continuing compass in their life. Yeah. And that actually leads right into what uh, my next note that I, I wanted to ask you about. And that was the difference between what we do versus who we are. Oh my difference between human being and human doing, we get so caught up in what we're doing. And, and that identifies us. I mean, we embrace that in cultural conversations. First thing we do, hi, Don, I'm Dan, what do you do? And we make conclusions about that person's intelligence, their academic background, their income influence to society and all that based on what they do daily. Whereas if in fact, we change those questions, you know, is there a dream that you have that you haven't yet completed? Now, what are you doing to make the world a better place? It opens a conversation broader than just what do you do? Yeah, we've got to get away from that model. And, and that also is a real issue if somebody is reaching retirement. We know that right now, 75% of people die within two years of their retirement. Now, we know that you don't decline that precipitously physically, but- no. If you retire, stop doing anything productive, you've essentially told your body, I don't need you anymore. Our body hears that message and we see those rapid declines, which is really, really sad. So it's not a matter of just, okay, what if you stop doing what you were doing professionally that was generating income, but still define what are you going to do to continue being a productive human being as a part of society where you are engaged with people and doing things that are worthwhile and meaningful. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and I've done a lot of research on this too, the longevity piece, it, it, they're so tied to that, uh, that, that work paid or unpaid, right. Having, having to have something in our life that keeps you going. And, and that actually just leads me right on to the next one, which is this idea that, Oh, I'm too old to live out my dreams. <laughs> Well, and you talk about that, right? And and like, what, yeah. is, what is too old? I think you mentioned a 27-year-old who was like, oh, am I too too old for that? I just had to laugh. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people wonder if they've kind of reached, reached the peak. We tend to see our lives as conforming to a bell curve. So we start, we get our degree, our profession and all that, and we peak. And research shows us that people usually peak about 23 years after they start. Well, what that means is you're going to peak when you're about 45 or so. Now, that could be true if you're laying railroad ties where you're not able to do quite as much as you were physically. But in today's environment, where we are using knowledge, information for our careers, we don't have those kind of limitations at all. And as things change and opportunities continue to unfold, we can essentially start another curve. But that bell curve, it's not a matter of just starting another one from the ground and going up. The next one starts at a higher point. That's why when I talk to people who lost their jobs or had a business that failed or they decide they don't want to be a dentist anymore, it's not going back and starting over. You start from that point and then you design the next curve up. Well, that's really exciting. And to that, there's no end. So you can determine anywhere along the line, you're going to go into the next stage, um, stage to stage. That's a, a term really out of the Old Testament, stage to stage, where you decide, okay, what am I going to do in this next season of life? I, I, I like to know I'm, I, I like to have things happen quickly. So I look at three year 
segments, three years. What do I want to do in the next three years? Now, that being said, I also like to look at the long term. I mean, right now, I'm planning on the next 25 years of my life. And in that, that's 100 quarters. So I can think in terms of this quarter, the next wow. quarter. So I, I frame those 25 years, and then I can come back 10 years, three years to really see, okay, what can I be doing today to be taking me toward what I've designed? Well, and, and boy, it's almost like you're reading my notes because that was <laughs> that was where I was going next with it was actually goal setting. And you talked about the magic of writing down your goals. And um, those of us who are, are big goal setters and planners, we know this is the time of year, right? You don't wait until next year to think about what your goals are for the next year, right? Where it's now November, um, you know, early November. But uh, I know you were talking about 48 days, of course, right? Before the end of the year. <laughs> That's right. So the 1st of November is a very significant timeline for me, perhaps the most important month of the year, because I encourage, and I certainly do myself, have my goals clearly set by November 14th in seven different areas of my life, not just career-wise, not just financially, but in seven different, different areas of my life. What I want to accomplish. Now, the significance of November 14th is, yes, that it is 48 days before the new year starts. So kind of my branded timeline there. But I really have experienced and observed this over and over. If people get clarity on what it is they want to accomplish, it's interesting. It's almost a magical process how the doors start to open in that direction. And we know that, you know, we get more of what we think about, what we focus on. Again, old assurances of that, the old Earl Nightingale little message, the strangest secret, we become what we think about. So if you get clear on what it is you want and you're thinking about that, we move toward that. We see ways for those doors to open, even if it seems big, a big dream to start out with. And having done that by November 14th, then it's amazing. As an example, let's say, you know, a lot of people say, gee, I want to lose 20 pounds. That's one of those typical kind of January goals. If you decide that by November 14th, I talk to a lot of people who by January 1st have already lost 10 pounds. So they're already halfway to the goal they set for the next year, just because they got clarity on it. And that's what I love to see. So you don't start January, gee, what do I want to do now? You know, then all of a sudden it's middle of January, end of January. Well, I lost a month. I guess I'll do this next year. No, if you're clear in February or in November, then you got a running start to what January 1st should be. For sure. And can you talk about the written goals? Do you mean like physically writing with a pen or are you saying typing them? Okay. What are, what are you, I've heard, I've heard it both ways. What, what are you, what's your philosophy on that? Well, I, I give a lot of flexibility there. I do not write by hand much. Um, I have, have terrible handwriting. I think just because of the years of experience, I think more clearly as I'm typing it. So yeah, I'm totally fine with that. If you want to use an iPad that you can write on. So I, I don't care what the form is to just get it down, but to have it in a, a written form. Yes. Not just as a, an elusive thought in your head, no, to have it clearly written down where you can see it, you can show others where you can have it in front of you. Now, you can't see the front of my computer screen here, but I got notes all around those of little things that are meaningful to me because I know that if I'm looking at it, 
subconsciously, again, it's going deep and become really part of who I am, part of my belief system, if I see it over and over and over again. And that's what I do with my goals. So and Franklin, you know, looking his, at them regularly as a part of the practice. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Ben Franklin had one major goal that he would work on each week and he had 13, you know, virtues. So he'd work on one, which means that he'd go through them each one four times during the course of a year. You know, Zig Ziglar having those seven categories that I've kind of modeled, he wanted to have something in two of those areas that he was working on each week. So there's a lot of ways to approach it. I review mine frequently but I always have running in the back of my mind what my goals are in all of those areas. And even in the course of a day, you're going to have things that you work on that help you in your physical well-being, your spiritual well-being, your relationships, you know, all those different areas. uh, They're kind of, they go on at the same time. I don't want to have a start stop to working on goals in different areas of my life. I want each one to fuel the others that are around that. It's much like the Venn diagram that I use for my business with seven different categories. Activity in one fuels the activity in the ones that it is connected to. The same way is happens with our goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, I always like to say the universe loves a made up mind, right? Things things really start to move um, once you've made a decision about what it is you want, and that that even that weight loss goal, that's a, that's a great example of just making that decision. Yes. Right. And then that, that subconscious goes to work and says, Oh, okay. Maybe I won't have that second piece of cheesecake or, you know, whatever it is. Right. That's right. <laughs> As you've, you've registered that decision. And, and, and with goals, you know, a lot of people see it as kind of an external process and they end up just creating a to-do list. If that's the case it's probably not going to work very well. And those are the people who by January 30th say, well, I didn't do too well. I guess I'll just forget this process. We hear about that a lot. We have to see it as more than just a to-do list. It really is a mindset. If you want to be in better health and have a better physique, you know, that's an overriding mindset that then will help you make that decision on the second piece of key lime pie or whatever it happens to be. So it's not just, okay, I checked it off my list. No, I want to be a better reader. I want to be more informed. So the idea that you decided you were going to read 12 books during the year is an overriding mindset. So you're attracted to that. So you're not just doing it so you can check it off as having completed that goal. That's a subtle thing that I'm still working on, Don. I'm trying to get more to the heart of that because I see people struggle with this and even resist the idea of having goals, which breaks my heart. Okay, right. call it something else, but how are you going to continue to grow? And mm-hmm. if you're not growing, then certainly uh, the life you're living now is a pretty good predictor of what you'll be doing three years from now. So I want to continue to grow. And so I keep looking at how can I do that effectively? And then how can I encourage others to do so as well? Yeah, there there is definitely a lot to it between the the subconscious part and then the habits, right? And and lining that up with that that whole exercise of of what do I want, right? There's so many different elements to it that really need to kind kind of come together to move you forward. And if you're fighting yourself, right, in different aspects of it, it, it just yeah. makes it that much harder to 
to move forward. And then what ends up happening, of course, is, you know, you set a goal, you don't achieve it. Oh, I'm not good at setting goals. So I'm not going to do it anymore, you know, and, and sort of you can really easily fall into that downward spiral of, of not setting goals at all, because I don't want to, I don't want to be a loser, you know, because I, right. I didn't, you know, achieve my goal. We'll be back in a moment. Isla Mujeres is a Caribbean jewel off the coast of Cancun. Castellito del Caribe warmly invites you to enjoy our spectacular oceanfront villa located in the heart of El Centro and a short walk to Playa Norte, which is ranked one of the top 10 beaches in the world. With an ocean view of crystal clear turquoise waters overlooking both the Caribbean and Cancun city skyline, we offer a fabulous location for you to enjoy all the peace and tranquility you're looking for on vacation, while also taking in all the excitement the island has to offer, with activities either in walking distance or a golf cart day excursion away. Please visit castellitocaribe.com www.castellitocaribe.com We look forward to seeing you soon. I'm so happy to have you with me for the Life in Paradise podcast. I love our listeners and fans and we'd love to show our appreciation for you supporting the show. So please head over to lifeinparadisepodcast.com where you can find free resources mentioned in the show and also register for our gifts, prizes, and swag. I'd also love to hear from you. So there's a place on that page to submit your questions, comments, and requests so I can serve you better. And if I answer your question on the show, we'll send you a free gift. something else I, I want to bring up before we we switch gears to to the happy topic of community and that is I love what you said about hummus oh right you talked about that with, with what had happened with you personally um, with the failure of your of a business and that whole rebirth process I'm sure you see that even in your business where folks come kind of kind of broken can you talk about that well the idea of hummus uh, implies literally hummus in its truest form, where it's it's deteriorating, it's going back to the earth the way it was, and we see it as a process of deconstruction almost. And yet, that is the re- the process of rebirth. Out of that comes something new and different because it's got the nutrients in there. And I think when we go through a a devastating experience, we got to look at it as such. We've got the nutrients there for a new start, a new beginning. And I, I like new beginnings because it does give us a clean slate. Not that I'm looking for failures to get to that point by any means, but in having gone through, but a couple of quick examples, Don, and one that I reference in, in the book is, you know, many years ago now, went through a devastating business disaster where I had a health and fitness center and uh, we had about 4,000 members night, but I changed our membership structure too quickly went from the old annual memberships, which I did not like. There you you sell a three-year membership and then you hope they don't show up the next day and never come back again. Because you got, and I I don't like that model. So I changed to a monthly where you pay monthly as you're using it. And if you're not using it, don't pay. Well, that really destroyed that immediate cash flow over the long term, it would have been fine, but I did it too quickly. Ended up, I decided to sell the business at public auction. And I did thinking, well, I'm an entrepreneur. 
you know, I'll walk out with a shirt on my back. I'll start something new and go on. Well, it didn't turn out even that uh, where I walked out with a shirt. I didn't walk out with a shirt on my back. I walked out naked and aching and realized that I owed a lot of money. I owed about half a million dollars to, to vendors and people after that was over. And coming out of that was a, a long, painful process. But it was in that coming out of it that I discovered new models of work. I always thought, and what I'd always experienced with businesses, if you want a bigger business, you get a bigger building, you hire more employees, you get more inventory, that's what you do. In that period of time, I discovered this amazing space, online communities, digital products, speaking, writing, coaching, that have no physical component, no capital intensive requirements at all. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't think I would have discovered that had I not gone through that process, I would have continued with the model that I understood. So that's that process of getting brought to your knees, you know, having to become hummus and starting over again. But it opened my eyes to something much bigger than I had ever experienced before. A few years ago in Tennessee, we had a place in Tennessee, we had our house. And then on the property, we had uh, this beautiful old barn that we converted into an event center we call the sanctuary. And we would have an event, events there or seven times a year, we'd have events there. We could hold a maximum of 60 people in that. And people paid $1,000 to come to a two-day event. So we did that seven times a year. So you can do the math on that, you know, creating a lot of income. And then the county showed up and said, you can't do that. After 12 years of doing it, promoting in the community, being involved in the community and all that, they said, no, you're not zoned properly for that. You can't do that. Even though we're you know, out in the country and a barn on our property. Anyway, but instead of just panicking at that point, there goes my business. No, I looked at, all right, this is another opportunity for me to go deep inside and come out with something better. This is how could we have people that do come together that still get the encouragement from others, share ideas and resources, maybe even if we don't have them in the same room together, but we do that in some way. Well, this is kind of the early days of online communities. We explored that. I got some training on that. And we started what is now called the 40 Days Eagles. That was in 2000, 2019, really, when we started that. So we started that since we were prevented from having those live conferences on our property. Well, you know what happened a couple of years after that, we had COVID. And all of a sudden, people who had live conferences scheduled panicked. They were in a big hurt. Some people really did lose their businesses because they had committed to hotels and caterers, and now we're not able to fulfill that. We were sitting perfectly. In that period of time, people were saying, I really do want community, and I can't go to conferences. Well, I can join Dan's Eagles community, and it fueled what we were doing there, and it pushed us way beyond the income that we were getting from all of those live conferences with the ease of not having to play in those live conferences and just the ongoing recurring monthly rollover that we get now. Again, one of those examples, we're going through an experience that wasn't welcome or expected, but becoming hummus, going deep and coming back up. What does this make possible with something better? And I, and so I having, I mean, I encourage people and I see people that think they're, you know, everything has gone down the tube. no, Let's look at what pieces are there, what can be rebuilt from the ashes of what you had. 
Yeah. And is that, um, is it something that, that you see a lot of resistance um, to doing or are people really uh, looking for that, that is there an optimism there or I guess it just depends on the person. I think sometimes there's a low level of belief. Yeah. People think it's an ending rather than the beginning of something new. Mm-hmm. So you have to believe in that rebirthing process that it's possible. So yeah, personalities differ. Some are more pessimistic and negative than others, but uh, I can always draw enough quick examples for people, I think, to give them some encouragement that it possibly could happen for them as well. And then to see it happen over and over. I mean, the person who loses their job, they're they're devastated immediately. Gee, we aren't going to go on vacation this year. We're going to turn back in the lease cars we got. We're going to pull the kids out of public or private schools we got them in and all that. But then I ran into them 18 months later and they say, you know what? That was the best thing that ever happened to me. It forced me to look at options that I had not considered. It allowed me to go back and revisit my dreams that I had when I was 20 years old. Now I'm doing something. My income is double what it was before. I have more time freedom and flexibility. That's not uncommon at all. I can almost you know, anticipate it when I'm hearing somebody talk about the, the horrific event that just happened to them, I'm already thinking ahead. Okay, 18 months, 36 months out, you're going to be singing a new song. That's wonderful. Yeah, I uh, one of my mentors years ago used to say, the challenges we get in life are gifts from God. They just come in rotten wrappers. Oh my, I love that. And uh, I've never <laughs> forgotten that. Uh, I've shared that often. And I, I think that's that's really what we're talking about here. Um, so, uh, I, I don't want to keep you too long, but I would like you to talk a little bit about, um, the importance of community in the entrepreneurial journey. Cause I know you work with folks about that, uh, on that. And can you, you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. We often think that being an entrepreneur means that you do everything yourself. So we really confine it to being a solopreneur. That's not what true and most successful entrepreneurs do, they recognize the power of connection, the idea of identifying what it is they do really well, and then linking arms with people around them who do the other components of what need to be done better than they do themselves. Everybody needs to, it doesn't mean that you need to all of a sudden have 30 employees working for you. You can structure the engagement of those other people much differently. You may need somebody, you know, two hours a month to do what they do and another person four hours a week. So you can structure it in creative ways like that, but you're not, you're going to put a real quick cap on what's possible if you think you have to do everything yourself. So promoting, nurturing those relationships, start with identifying what is it that you do really well? that you want to expand? What is it that you can systematize? What is it that you need to eliminate? What is it that you can delegate? And that frees you up to really work in your zone of genius, which is so, so important. Now, those how do, how do you make those connections? You know, a few years ago, there was a book written, it was a very popular book by David Bach called The Latte Factor. And in there, he said, if you stop spending $3.50 a day, you know, stopping to get your latte, you know, you'll have this much money and it'll grow and grow and grow. And you'll have a million dollars, you know, when you're 96 years old and don't know what to do with it. Well, mathematically, that makes sense. But there's a larger concept that in in terms of the behavior that he really glossed over. I have a lot of lunch meetings with people. I meet a lot of people for coffee or a quick break. What 
is gained in terms of what those relationships lead to. New doors of opportunity open, new speaking opportunities, new ideas that are birthed. Meeting with somebody a couple of years ago, met with a couple only because the wife was a friend of my wife and I agreed to have dinner with them. I connected with the guy. We started sharing ideas together. I ultimately invited him to be part of my mastermind. And last year, he and I started an investment company together. And now we're just ready to make a major investment and a company together. But that was just because we had dinner together. So those kind of things, see those things, not as just wasted social time, but those are doors of connection to help you continue to grow, learn new things, and to see opportunities that aren't going to show up otherwise. And the spent money on a cup of coffee or a meal together is far surpassed by what you're going to get as return if you really are prepared, you know, to see it as such. Well said. I couldn't agree more. Um, that that uh, I, I was never a big fan of that whole latte factor thing anyway, because I thought, <laughs> well, why why give up your coffee if it brings you joy? Like, why don't you just go make more money? Right. There you, go. <laughs> <laughs> you can have both. <laughs> That's right. So, well, that's great. Um, before we wrap up, I'll just give you an opportunity. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you, you'd like to share? Wow, we covered a lot of good ground. No, love the, you, you, I love your, your term. You talk about paradise so much. You know, as you mentioned, we recently moved from Tennessee to Florida. And my wife, every morning, I mean, you, know, you know Joanne, and she gets up and she literally says, it's another day in paradise. She has to pinch herself to make sure that this isn't a dream. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, we won the lottery or something. It just means that we were very intentional about what our version of paradise is. Joanne loves the water. She loves the sunshine. It's never too hot for her. And so we just based the life we chose and designed around those things that bring us joy. And so it's not like we're waiting till someday we can go enjoy the life we want to live. No, we design the life we want to live right now and enjoy it every day. Oh, perfect. That's a perfect ending to uh, to our discussion, uh, Dan. Thank you for sharing that. Because that's really, at the end of the day, what it's about is, you know, our, our idea of paradise isn't the same. Like we're, you know, different people like different things. And that's really what it's all about is what's what's your paradise that brings you joy? in your life. And we thank, are thankful every single day when we wake up and, you know, see that beautiful blue ocean and uh, yes. where we live. So that uh, gives us the, the fuel, right, to, to do the work that we love to do and uh, serve. Dan has generously offered a free gift for our listeners, his goal-setting workbook. It's part of his 48-day goal-setting challenge where you can put yourself in the driver's seat of your life immediately by creating a clear plan and deciding what's important to you. So it's a great way to kick off the new year and you can go to lifeinparadisepodcast.com and grab that free gift. I will say goodbye for now and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Very good. Thank you, Don. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Life in Paradise podcast. Did you love this episode? If so, we'd love for you to follow, rate, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We invite you to tune in every week for more inspired insights and wisdom to create your Somebody Pinch Me reality. And until next time, 
Dream big and act on it daily.